This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Romans 3.23 tells us plainly that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it's why we need a Savior and why God sent His only begotten Son to die for us and conquer our sin and death through His resurrection. This is the good news. But even though we understand that theology about our fall into sin, it doesn't prevent us as parents from sometimes asking our disobedient or mischievous kids, why did you just do that? (laughs) That's why we all stand to benefit really from a further understanding understanding of why our children do what they do and why they continue to do it and learn how to parent better. So we're going to talk about that today with parenting expert, psychologist, and best-selling author, Dr. Kevin Lehman. His book is out and it's called Why Your Kids Misbehave and What to Do About It. Dr. Lehman, great to have you with us. How are you? Well, I'm old, a little wrinkled. I could lose a few pounds, but other than that, I'm great. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Well, I think a lot of us can identify with that, but those are all good things as well. This is, yeah, you know what? You have done so many great parenting books, and I think this is one that continues to resonate with with parents, this idea that my kids just don't do what I want them to do, and they come up with these crazy schemes. We know our kids are sinners, but talk a little bit about this issue of misbehavior. What is that all about? Why do they do this? Well, kids, engage in what I call purposive behavior. Their behavior serves a purpose in their lives. And so purposive, by the way, came out of individual psychology. That's man's psychology. Alfred Adler was the guy that developed that. And what attracted me to Alfred Adler was his psychological theory paralleled Christianity beautifully. Hmm. So kids misbehave for a purpose. Most kids, all kids, are attention getters, Janet. Yep. But do they get it positively or negatively? So the first level of misbehavior is attention getting. As a kid gets discouraged, he or she warps into the powerful child. They're the ones that have to have the last answer on everything. (laughs) You tell them the sky is blue, they're going to tell you it's aqua. Yep. And, uh, And then it gets worse. If kids get more discouraged, they become revengeful. And their mantra in life is, I've been hurt by life, therefore I'm going to strike out at other people. Hmm. The powerful child says, I only count life when I'm the boss, when I win, when I dominate. And the uh, attention getter says, I only count when people notice me, or I put other people in my service. Right. So you have kind of a, a attrition there. If you have a kid who doesn't get enough attention, then they might get into that next category of power and then go to revenge. But when you're talking yeah. about... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, Pam, here's what you have to understand. Everybody, uh, you're in Texas, right? Am I thinking right? Yes, sir. Okay. 
I get yes sir by the way <laughs> more in the state of Texas than any other states I've spoken in. Yes, uh, but in Texas, across the Christian Church in general, we use authoritarian means of bringing up children. Mm-hmm. Hey, you listen up. You can do whatever I tell you to do as long as you live under this roof. You understand me? Yep. Hey, you want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. Okay, <laughs> that's the authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Here's the question for all your listeners: Is God an authoritarian? Well, Does he dep- grab us by the scruff of the neck? Yeah. Does he twist our earlobe? Does he say, you got to do this, you got to do that? No. In fact, the Scripture says, every knee shall what? Bow. So he is the supreme authority, yeah. but not an authoritarian. Right. So all of our training, many of the famous books written by people like myself, are based upon authoritarian means of bringing up kids. And that's why they don't work. And they haven't worked, and they'll ever work. Hmm. Yeah, so when you're talking about authoritarian, the parent obviously needs to be in charge. So what is the difference between being an authoritarian and having authority in the home and exercising that in an appropriate way? Okay, well, let me give you a teenager, because they're interesting people to think about. Your teenager, 17 years old, says to you, when you ask them just simply to pick up their room or something, Hey, get off my case, get out of my life, give me space, chill out, back off, don't have a comment. Okay. The authoritarian parent says, what did you say? Yeah. All right, you are grounded for one month, young man. Yeah. There's your authoritarian. Okay. Let me give you the authoritative parent. Get off my case, get out of my life, chill, back off, don't have a comment. You turn around and you leave. You don't say a word. Hour and a half later, 17-year-old says, hey, Dad, can I take the car? I want to go shoot some hoops at Jake's house. And you look at your son and said, well, I'd love to help you, son, but right now I'm out of your life. Hmm. <laughs> you see? And here's the other thing. Is we don't have much time in this interview, but parents really need to get this. Stop asking kids questions. Yeah. Husbands, I just t- talked to Charlie a few minutes ago. You asked Charlie how much he loves Janet's questions. I'm here to tell you, if he's never told you this, I'm going to tell you something on Janet Mufford today. Okay. He hates your questions. <laughs> yes, he does men, sometimes. <laughs> men hate questions. Yep. Kids hate questions. Yep. So don't tell me your husband won't talk to you, ladies, and don't tell me your kid won't talk to you. Try this. Charlie, can I ask your opinion about something? And the Charlies of this world youngest male in his family, will talk your ear off. Hmm. So will your kids. So what I try to teach kids in this new book, and this is book number 60-something, believe it or not. Wow. Okay? Yeah. yeah, that's what I said. Wow. <laughs> Good kindling for a November evening, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, these are such simple uh, concepts that you can put them to work today. And you can see an immediate change in your son or your daughter. We essentially, Janet, teach kids how to misbehave. Wow. Yeah, that's true. That's true by the response or the lack thereof. But what about the little kid? If you have a two or three or four-year-old who just wants mom's attention by sticking a fork up his nose, that's a different situation than the 17-year-old who wants you to back off from getting the room cleaned up. What do you do with the little ones? Little ones, we use way too many words. Uh... I start the book off with a, a fun little uh, vignette. Came right out of my life watching a young 
family settled into a Texas Roadhouse Steakhouse, mm-hmm. and they sat right next to us. And I could see things were not going to go well when the 13-month-old pulled up her little legs and uh, decided she wasn't going to sit in that stupid high chair with a wooden, those wooden things you can turn them upside down, if you know what I'm talking about. Yes. And I just said to myself, this is going to be good. (laughs) And my wife finally gave me the look because she knew I was going to say something. And she's the smarter one of the two of us. And she got my attention. I didn't say a word, but. We literally teach kids how to misbehave. That little 13-month-old is saying, oh, boy, here they go again. Oh, here comes Dad with the airplane thing. He makes the weirdest sound with that thing. (laughs) Doesn't he understand that I get it? So we don't give young kids enough credit for them knowing what they're really doing. But to answer your question succinctly, when a kid is misbehaving, so to speak, you pick up the little sucker, okay? And you remove them from the scene. Real simple. You don't have to say any words. If you have to say something, make it brief. A simple no is okay. Put them in a room. Close the door. Let them uh, yell at the moon. Okay? Yes. When they're quiet, they get to come back out again. Powerful kids will scream for 15 minutes. They'll kick a door, they'll have a hissy fit, a meltdown, but it'll pass. When it passes, welcome back to life. Right, right. But trying to reason with a two- or three-year-old, I see young parents today, honey, would you like this or that? I mean, hey, <sighs> be the parent here. Yes. This is breakfast. Exactly. You want to eat, you're welcome. If you're not, we'll see you at noon. Oh, I know. I, I see that all the time, and I, I talk about that quite a bit when I observe some of those scenarios myself. And I said, do you know you're the mother? Just pick her up. She, she's not in yeah. charge, you know. I know. Yeah. I, I have the exact same reaction, absent your expertise in this area. But there's a lot more to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back with Dr. Kevin Lehman. His book is called Why Your Kids Misbehave and What to Do About It. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound and every gift helps. To donate, please call now 
402 baby. That's 855 402 2229. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us psychologist and best-selling author, Dr. Kevin Lehman, our wonderful parenting expert. His book is called Why Your Kids Misbehave and What to Do About It. Dr. Lehman, one of the things that I really am intrigued by, and you talk about this in your book, is the differences sometimes that occur when you're talking about kids in terms of their birth order. The firstborn versus the middle kid versus the youngest kid. How does that come into play when you're dealing with this issue of misbehavior? Well, again, let me remind your listeners, did God make us all different? Yes. We're all different. Your firstborn is, tends to be rule-oriented. Uh, they're the little judge duties of the world. <laughs> uh, the babies of the family are fun-loving, never met a stranger, most likely to marry a firstborn or an only child. Uh, babies get away with murder. <laughs> Middle children mediate, negotiate. Never had mom and dad themselves. So you sort of have to know your child, and they're different with some kids. You just give them the look, mom, and they'll straighten up. Yes. Other kids, you can beat them with a stick, and they're going to say defiantly, that didn't hurt. So you have to just use common sense and treat your kids differently. But how many parents really treat their kids differently? Do they give honor to the firstborn? Does the firstborn get to stay up later than the secondborn or the thirdborn? Hmm. No, most of us just say, all right, everyone listen up. I want everybody in bed now. Yep. Well, we do that because it's expedient. Uh, but I go out in the business world and consult with CEOs and uh, high-profile business groups and I always ask them, do you sell people the same way? If you do, you won't be a great salesperson. True. But if you sell people differently, like babies of the family, like your husband, Charlie, and I, we would buy a car completely different than a firstborn. Hmm. Yeah. A firstborn will read Car and Driver magazine, Consumers Reports. They'll know more about the car than the salesperson. <laughs> Us babies, we walk in and we see... We see some bling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're attracted like a, a raccoon is to a tin can. And uh, it's the world over. And so birth order book, I mean, millions of trees have died um, in honor of that book. And I just think it's a testimony how you look at the three or four little cubs, they came out of the same den. And yet they're all different. Yes, they are. So that's how much... That's how much Almighty God loved us. Uh, identical twins, I think this is sort of funny as a sidebar. Identical twins have the same DNA. They're genetically the same person. Mm -hmm. But Almighty God gave them different fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Why? To help the FBI? <laughs> or was this God's way of saying, you are my son, you are 
my daughter, you're different than everybody else. Yes. So, parent, you know, some of you have a little bluebird in your family. They're the kid that's got their hand up in school all the time. In fact, they're shaking your hand to try to get the attention of the teacher. <laughs> they're a straight-A student. They're lovely to have around. They're cooperative. They're great kids. Then you have that second daughter, and she's a little different. And to make it worse, she's got a little brother, the only son in the family. The smart parent in my book will come to that middle child and say, Honey, can I ask your opinion about something? Sure, what? It's about your sister. What about her? Is she a little over the top or is it me? Now, when you say that to a kid who's had to live in the shadow of little Bluebird who does everything right, and little Buford, the baby of the family who got away with murder, <laughs> finally that light goes on in that kid's mind that says, Somebody understands what I'm up against. Wow. Wow, that's so, good. I'm telling you, these are little gold nuggets that people will find in this book that really set the trajectory of that kid's life in a direction where they get to make up their mind if they're going to acknowledge who Jesus Christ is in life. Yeah, yeah. They're going to make that decision. And they don't have to be like their, their rule-oriented older sister or brother. That's right. They're all created equal in God's eyes. They're all created in his image, but we're very, very different from one another. And kids come wired differently. Every parent, I think, would agree on that point. But, you know, I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, because I think this becomes an issue with parents pretty frequently. And that is the difference between the child who does respond, uh, the more compliant child, when the parent says, I want you to do this, that, or the other thing, versus the kid who won't do anything. The kid who's the bucking bronco, and it requires, you know, know, four or five levels of 3D chess in order to figure out sometimes how to deal with that kid. And that can wear parents down. What advice would you give to parents on just having patience with the bucking bronco and maybe some tips on how to deal with that kind of misbehavior with that personality? I like your description, the bucking bronco, because that's what they're like. It's like trying to put a saddle on them. Good luck. (laughs) Well, you know, if I could just teach parents... But just tell that child or ask him something once. I don't care if it's something as benign as taking the garbage out or picking up your room or whatever. But a simple premise that I used in the book, uh, Have a New Kid by Friday, is simply B doesn't start till A gets completed. (laughs) So there's no warnings in this system. Warnings are disrespectful acts. You teach kids to listen. The reason kids don't don't follow through is ask any kid, how many times do mom or dad have to ask you to do something? And most kids will say three. Hmm. Well, explain that. Well, the first time is just sort of a general alert. And the second time, they raise their voice. And the third time, when they really mean it, they throw your middle name in there. True, true. So, the, again, I go back to this theme that we teach kids, Janet, how to misbehave. We allow the misbehavior to happen. So parents, be an authority. You have all the gold in your back pocket. Your son or daughter, quite frankly, wouldn't have underwear on right now if you didn't buy it for them. So who's kidding who? You are an authority. I'm just urging you not to be an authoritarian and certainly don't be a permissive. 
So when a job isn't done by the little bucking Bronco, but he comes back later and wants something, a simple, honey, I don't feel like doing anything right now. Let them figure out that you're unhappy. And one of the best disciplines for young kids is for mom or dad to look that ankle biter in the eye and say, I am very unhappy. Hmm. Turn your back and walk out of the room. You rake coals on that kid, whether you know or not. Because parents, I'm telling you, your kid wants to please you. Yeah. Let them please you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, and something else that comes up, and parents will talk about this. This is a very big issue, as you know. I don't want to harm my child's self-esteem. I don't want my child to feel bad about herself. And it drives me a little crazy when I hear that kind of talk. But there, there is this misnomer among some parents that if you are too authoritative, not just authoritarian, but authoritative, right. that somehow you'll damage the little darling. How would you disabuse people of that notion? <laughs> I would love to punch those parents out <laughs> in a Christian-loving way. Of course. I mean, they, yes. they, they drive me nuts. I mean... Uh, these are the ones that tell me that trees have feelings, uh, too. Uh, you know, I, I reared five kids, and we had a surprise at age 42. Mm-hmm. And to show you, God was the greatest humorist ever. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I, I mean, Sandy and I, had a baby at uh, 48. Wow. So, yeah, wow. So we've been there, we've done it, and I'm not here to tell you that parenthood's a cakewalk. It's not. But the simple truth, they prevail. Uh, Again, one of my favorite little one-liners is this. An unhappy child, Janet, is a healthy child. There's times your son or daughter needs to be unhappy. Why? Because they dissed you, they talked back to you, they stole something, they lied, whatever it is. Our goal isn't to create happy children. Our goal is to create a responsible young adult. Yes. But how many parents have given the authority of the 11-year-old to pay all the bills in the family? <laughs> None, I hope. They can, right. they, they, well, no, wait a minute. Uh, what a wonderful teachable moment for an 11-year-old or 12-year-old to find out how much a mortgage payment costs. Well, that's true. How, yes. much, yes. how much a car payment costs. So if you want a responsible child, I ask you, would it be a good idea to give kids responsibilities? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I call it reality discipline. I mean, again, none of this stuff is complicated. I, if, they, if my publisher said, Lehman, could you write a really complicated book for us on parenting or marriage? I couldn't do it. <laughs> Well, that's the point. I think it's pretty simple. That's the point, is that you're right. These simple truths do prevail. And what about the issue of lasting behavioral change in your kids? How do you achieve that? You mentioned reality discipline. Is that really the key? I think so. I think here's the key. You let the reality of the situation, whatever it is, become the teacher to a child. Now, again, those parents who think they're going to damage the kid's psyche for life, as you brought up, they don't want the kids to experience failure. Hmm. In fact, it's not uncommon for a parent to say something like, hey, would you kids turn that music down? I'm trying to finish your homework. <laughs> Gee whiz, really? <laughs> oh, did, how, listen, they interviewed me on national TV about the scandal out on the West Coast with all these actors and actresses paying $500,000 and more to get their kid into a prestigious school. Insane. Yeah, it's insane. 
It is. But I mean, this is the thing. It's, you know, going back to basics. That's what strikes me again and again whenever I read one of your books is that you're just giving some great common sense advice to, in many respects, some parents who just have not heard it before. And that's why it's so effective, I think, and so good for people to read your books. Let me recommend it. It's Why Your Kids Misbehave and What to Do About It by Dr. Kevin Lehman, bestselling author. Always good to talk to you, Dr. Lehman. Keep up the good work. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thank you for being with us. God bless you. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. I don't know what's going on in this country. I never thought I'd see the day that I would see what I'm seeing. It's incredible. What am I talking about now? Well, we've been telling you a lot about the churches and how churches have been precluded from having church in this situation and the other situation. You can't have this capacity. You can't have this many people. You can't have a drive-in service. You can't do this. You can't do that. Now they don't want you to have communion. Yep. Nope. They don't want you to have the Lord's Supper. This is how far it's going. Listen to this. This is from America Magazine, which did an interview with none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Mr. Coronavirus, as some people like to call him. As states around the country begin to ease stay-at-home orders, Dr. Fauci said churches should adopt common sense measures to protect worshipers in the wider community, like requiring masks, practicing social distancing, and prohibiting singing. Oh, he's on board with that too. Regarding the distribution of communion, he said, I think for the time being, you just got to forestall that. Is that what you think, Dr. Fauci? Just give up communion. Give up communion. In an interview with America, Dr. Fauci said churches in places experiencing a sustained decline in coronavirus cases can slowly take steps to reopen safely by following public health guidelines, including those from the CDC. You always have to take into account what the dynamic of the outbreak is in your particular region, Dr. Fauci said. Having said that, when you're dealing with a nationwide outbreak like we have right now, you've really got to take precautions. Churches should limit the number of people so that you don't have people in the pews right next to each other. Those gathered should absolutely wear masks, Dr. Fauci said. Although, wasn't he the same guy who just said a couple of days ago that, uh, yeah, he's wearing a mask now. And, and partly the reason he's doing that is it's a symbol. It's just kind of an, a symbolic gesture. What? If it's symbolic, then it's not a public health matter. If it's both and, then it's not merely public health that is driving the mask situation. So then he went on to say this. If the priest is on the altar, of course, he's Catholic. He's a Jesuit or was educated by Jesuits. If the priest is on the altar, separated by 30, 40, 50 feet, you know, I wouldn't think it was absolutely necessary to use masks. Wait a minute. Now he doesn't want you to use masks if you have a 30 foot distance. 
but the people who are within six or 10 feet of each other really need to. Was it six or 10, Dr. Fauci? In addition, singing should be discouraged, Dr. Fauci said, because it dramatically increases the distance that droplets travel, adding to the possibility of spreading infection. He said, when you sing, the amount of droplets and aerosol that come out is really, in some respects, scary. Yep. Communion is the kind of close interaction that you don't want when you're in the middle of a deadly outbreak, according to Dr. Fauci. Don't take communion. Asked if he thinks communion can be distributed safely, because as we know, there are different ways that people take communion. You have in the Catholic Church, for example, a common cup. You have that in Lutheran churches. You have that in Anglican churches. But in the Protestant churches, like the Lutheran churches, you also often have individual cups and you have individual pieces of bread. You know, that's a separate matter, but you have individual portions, as it were, of the Lord's Supper, as opposed to having a big common cup that's wiped by the priest or wiped by the pastor before the next person takes part in it. So he, I guess, is looking at this as a Catholic where you just have the common cup and maybe some Catholic churches, I'm not Catholic, but maybe some um, Catholic churches also have um, individual portions sometimes. I don't know. He says it depends on where you are because he expressed concern not only about a shared cup for consecrated wine, but also about distribution of hosts. And he suggested waiting until the outbreak is more controlled before reintroducing communion. Again, he says it depends on where you are. If you are in a region, a city, a county where there is a significant amount of infection, I think with distributing communion, I think that would be risky. I'm telling you that as a Catholic, it would be risky. Okay, well, why do you have to be Catholic if you're speaking in your capacity as a health expert. This guy's all over the map. Am I the only one noticing this? Also, you have this story from the Catholic News Agency. An executive order issued this week in Maryland's Howard County outlines public health rules under which churches may reopen. The order prohibits the distribution and consumption of any food or drink as part of any religious service, effectively outlawing the distribution of communion. And for Roman Catholics, they say the celebration of the Mass. This order outlines the conditions and regulations that must be met for non-essential businesses to resume operations. It was released by Howard County Executive Calvin Ball. And it says there shall be no consumption of food or beverage of any kind before, during or after religious services, including food or beverage that would typically be consumed as part of a religious service. You know what? You guys are out of your lane. It's none of your business. Calm down. Stop crossing that precious wall of separation between church and state that you liberals love to cite all the time. You love it when you're trying to stop anybody from praying in public schools or having little kids bring candy canes to give out to their friends with a message of the gospel to their pals when they're out in recess. You know, you love cracking down on people like that. But when it comes to churches wanting to take communion safely, and many churches are having these individual portions in little wrapped containers uh, distributed during communion now. You know, you're just in there with your big your big fist, you know, take a sledgehammer to that little nail. It's unbelievable to me. Now, here's where I'm going with this, because I think this is very significant. I looked this up a little bit. This was from 1998. This was from the American Journal of Infection Control. Listen to what this says. It's um, from volume 26, issue five, risk of infectious disease transmission from a common communion cup. It says this, for more than two decades, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has stated an official position to inquirers about the risk of infectious disease transmission from a common communion cup. 
Although no documented transmission of any infectious disease has ever been traced to the use of a common communion cup, a great deal of controversy surrounds this issue. The CDC still continues to receive inquiries. And so in the following letter, the CDC strives to achieve a balance of adherence to scientific principles and respect for religious beliefs. But did you catch the main line there? There has never been any documented transmission of any infectious disease that can be traced back to the use of a common communion cup. Game over, isn't it? Here's something else. I go back to Cambridge, uh, Cambridge University, and and they're also referencing the CDC report. Listen to this. This is a, a little article entitled Low Risk of Infection from Common Communion Cup. It says, in response to a controversy surrounding the risk of infectious disease transmission from a communion cup, the CDC recently stated that a theoretical risk exists, but is so small as to be undetectable. Experimental studies have shown that bacteria and viruses can contaminate a common communion cup and survive despite the alcohol content of the wine. Thus, any ill person or asymptomatic carrier drinking from the cup potentially could expose other members of the congregation to pathogens present in the saliva. However, a recent study of 681 people found that people who receive communion as often as daily are not at higher risk of infection compared with persons who do not receive communion or persons who do not attend church services at all. In summary, the CDC stated that the risk for infectious disease transmission by a common communion cup is very low and appropriate safeguards such as wiping the interior and exterior rim between communicants, use of care to rotate the cloth during use, and use of a clean cloth for each service would further diminish this risk. In addition, churches may wish to consider advising their congregations that sharing the communion cup is discouraged if a person has an active respiratory infection or moist or open sores on their lips. That's what the CDC had to say. How come Fauci doesn't know what the CDC has had to say on the risk of infectious disease transmission from a common communion cup? So, you know, they call us crazy, but I'm looking at the data here and I'm looking at the science here. I'm looking things up. I'm looking on the CDC website. I'm trying to access these academic journals that have addressed some of these issues that have come to the forefront during the pandemic. And I'm trying to make an informed opinion based on facts, not just on fear. And I want to know who died and gave Dr. Fauci the right to tell churches that they can't have communion. He's advising. I know he's advising. He's not dictating from on high. But when Dr. Fauci says something so irresponsible, then it gives the little tyrants across America the moral cover that they need to do things like the Maryland County is doing and telling churches you can't have communion. This is why it's so important for churches to assert the First Amendment, because it isn't just about science with this pandemic, which is being shown to be true day after day after day. When we come back, we're going to chat a little bit with Ryan Tucker from Alliance Defending Freedom, talking about some of the cases that are going on right now for churches across America. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer Today.
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our Preborn Center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories. Preborn centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 dollars to clinics if this goal is reached. And you can help. Call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. When we are finally able to look back on this pandemic, I think a lot of Christians will remember more than anything how the state, in too many cases, was willing to violate our religious freedom, all in the name of public health. Alliance Defending Freedom has been involved in a number of these religious freedom cases stemming from overreach during the pandemic. The latest include action in Nevada, Oregon, and Indiana. So we're going to find out more about what's going on now from Ryan Tucker, who is Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries at Alliance Defending Freedom. Ryan, great to have you with us. How are you? Great. Well, good. It's great to have you here. Well, I want to talk about some of these cases. I want to talk first about this federal lawsuit that I know ADF has filed on behalf of this church in Nevada against Governor Steve Sisolak and some of the other state officials. This is related to capacity, isn't it? That the churches can't have more than 10 people while the restaurants and the stores get to operate at 50 percent capacity. Tell us a little bit about this case. Sure. Well, you're exactly right. It has to deal with the number of individuals that can uh, attend a service. And as a number of us have seen, it's a little bit of a moving target. In fact, the governor just recently changed the number from 10 to 50. Um, and, and one would think, well, at least it, that's moving in the right direction. But but the big problem is the, the fact that malls, gyms, restaurants, bars, um, they can have uh, occupancies up to 50%. Hmm. Um, and, and so you've got this great divide between what the church can do and what other commercial establishments can do. Right. So when we're talking about that issue, we're really getting down to the non-essential versus essential designation, aren't we? We are. I mean, certainly, uh, as we've seen in Nevada, we see it, as you mentioned, in Oregon and several other places across the United States. I mean, the church is being placed on a, on a low pedestal. Um, you know, in many instances, uh, 
you know, they're designated not essential, um, and they have these numerical restrictions that, you know, their counterparts simply don't have. Well, right. Now, you mentioned Oregon. This is another place where you were involved in some legal action. I know there are two churches there. Is that right, that have filed suit in federal court against Governor Catherine Brown? What is What are the details on those particular uh, legal actions taking place there? That, that's exactly right. And I, I think it's best illustrated by this point. If you go to a restaurant and, um, let's say, um, you know, 26 people in a life group or, you know, whatever it is, maybe it's a uh, um, you know, a team or family celebrating something. You go to a restaurant with 26 people, that's, that's fine. That's okay. But if you have those same 26 people in a house of worship, well, that's illegal. That can get you fined. That could get you prison. Wow. And it, it's <laughs> absolutely nuts what is going on in Oregon. And so we were, uh, you know, forced really to file suit uh, in Oregon. There's a lot of different lawsuits out west and uh, you know we're hopeful uh, for a positive result there as well am i right in in understanding that pastors can actually be jailed you just alluded to prison but pastors could actually be jailed for up to a month and fined over a thousand dollars if they violate this executive order from the governor yeah that's right i mean there are some extremely draconian uh, laws out there oregon uh, as you mentioned is one of those um, you know, we've seen these uh, across the United States. Uh, some of them, fortunately, are, are no longer because, you know, through the process of sending a demand letter or litigation, uh, some of these orders have fallen by the wayside. And uh, we'd love for that to happen out in Oregon. But so far, there's, there's been no budging there. Well, right. Now, these churches, as I understand it, are in Josephine and Douglas counties where there are, well, Josephine County doesn't have any COVID-19 cases that I've heard of. I guess this is as of a few days ago. Douglas County has had two. So why is this such a serious situation yeah. in the mind of the governor that she'd be so draconian about it? it it's a real head scratcher. I, I, you know, common sense, um, you know, really isn't, isn't coming into play. And, you know, speaking of common sense, though, despite the fact that there are either no cases or, or nominal amounts, these churches are being extremely proactive. Um, you ought to see the, the, the list, the protocols that they have put in place that go beyond even what, you know, these secular or commercial entities are putting in place. So they're being very proactive about it. They want to protect the flock. They, um, you know, have, have agreed themselves to do many things that they're quite frankly not not required to do. So uh, even even in a situation where there really hasn't been um, an outbreak in their area. That's so weird. Now, these churches, I know we're planning to open up again on Sunday. Do they still plan to do that, even though technically it's illegal? Yeah, it depends on which state you're talking about. But certainly in Nevada, yes, um, you know, we'll be going to the court there asking uh, for a, a temporary restraining order. And so we're hoping for a, a positive result there uh, in advance of Sunday. And, uh, you know, again, none of these churches want to, um, you know, violate the law. They want to comply. And honestly, all of them have been in complete compliance with, you know, these governors, uh, real draconian orders since the get-go. Um, but the problem is when you see uh, or when you physically can go into a gym, you can work out, um, you know, as long as you're social distancing, but if you happen to go to a 
church service, you find yourself getting fined or possibly imprisoned. I mean, you know, enough is enough. Yeah, for sure. You know, this is interesting because, as we know, Attorney General Bill Barr has intervened on behalf of some of these churches. I know he intervened pretty recently in California, and that led Mm -hmm. uh, Governor Newsom to, uh, you know, kind of modify the regulations there for churches. But has uh, Attorney General Barr intervened at all in Oregon to this point? Uh, not yet, um, but but rest assured, I, I imagine as as he is with all of the cases that are going on across the United States. I know he's monitoring those, and uh, you know we fully um, w- would welcome um, his support. In fact, our case in Mississippi, it seems like a year ago, but it was only a month and a half ago. <laughs> yeah. um, in Greenville, Mississippi, that was the first case where Attorney General Barr. Uh, came in and uh, filed a statement of interest and issued a uh, public statement. Right. That was the case involving the drive-ins with right. the uh, the $500 fines. Yeah. Well, you've had a lot of success. I know. What have you had? About a dozen cases now regarding religious freedom during the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, at least. And so that, that's included both, you know, lawsuits being filed. Uh, it's included uh, demand letters where, you know, we were, you know, we always try, if we can, to resolve this uh, short of litigation. In fact, uh, you know, today... Um, you know, your listeners may, may soon hear about a couple more that we're sending out. And so if we can resolve it, you know, short of litigation, that, that's always the best route. But uh, many times that's not the case. And so we've been blessed to uh, uh, be successful in, in each of these um, situations we've had to engage. Well, that's wonderful. You sent a letter, I know, to the Indianapolis mayor as well, haven't you? Similar situation there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, it, again, the, the state of Indiana uh, is in a lot better shape, but the the, the city itself, Indianapolis, and uh, the, the the surrounding county, um, you know, has not been treating uh, churches, at least until recently, um, on, on the same level uh, playing field. So, before we sent our letter, um, there was about a 25 person cap, but malls were uh, open up to 50 percent of capacity, and uh, in fact. No, if the church wanted to perform an outdoor service, they were precluded to precluded from doing so. So we sent a demand letter uh, to the city, to the county authorities, and um, I'm I'm glad to report that Indianapolis just uh, recently uh, changed uh, its restrictions there. So now this church that we we're writing on behalf of um, can uh, host those services. They have a 50% inside um, capacity limit. There's no outdoor. Um, uh, caps for them, and they were simply just wanting to have. They have a huge, huge uh, amount of land, and they just wanted to have an outdoor service uh, for their um, uh, members there. And so, thankfully, they're able to do that this coming Sunday. Well, that's great. I want to get your quick legal opinion on something else, Ryan. I know we're running out of time, but very quickly, Dr. Fauci and also a Maryland county have come out and are now telling churches you shouldn't take communion. What do you think of that? The state now involving itself, even if they're making strong recommendations, you shouldn't take communion. I mean, have you ever imagined we would get to this point in the United States? No, and and I mentioned just a short while ago the fact that there were a couple letters uh, that we had ready to go. Well, you know, you may have landed on one because it is absolutely insane. Um, The the unfortunate thing about Maryland, you know, the governor's come out and said, look, um, you know, local authorities, you're free to um, institute your own measures. And uh, there's more than one county there in Maryland that has um, really instituted some uh, 
unconstitutional um, orders, and we're very concerned about what's going on there. Well, that's good. I mean, it's so important. If one thing really has been driven home to me, it's how important the work of ADF is and, and, and some of these churches who are just flailing and saying, what in the world is, is my governor doing? What in the world is my mayor doing? And it's just wonderful that you're there to be able to intervene on behalf of these churches at Alliance Defending Freedom. Ryan Tucker, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Christian Ministries. Really good to talk to you, Ryan. Keep up the good work and thank you so much for the update. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. You take care. Thank you for listening today. We appreciate your tuning in as always to Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time. God bless.